Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Yeah, great to connect, guys. What a what a busy week in policy and politics. Absolutely. Well, uh, double barrel show this week. Let's talk about uh, the latest. I don't know how you tumult, uh, just endless kind of uh, eruptions and tangents that this Johnston uh, report and the former governor general's own kind of increasing participation in the story um, evidenced uh, this week. Uh, We also had the testimony end of week. By Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister. Some fantastic kind of tidbits for us to parse out for our listeners there. And then the back half of the show, let's talk Bill C-18. This is the uh, the new legislation the government seemingly committed to getting through Parliament before it adjourns for the summer that would require the large platforms to compensate uh, news organizations. Uh, Meta, Facebook is going to start testing uh, like Google did what it could mean to restrict uh, Canadians' access to news information originating from news organizations, a whole bunch of big issues I want to dig in with both you guys around Bill C-18. But let's start with David Johnson. I'm going to come to you first, Sean. Uh, We ended the week, let's start where we ended the week, with uh, Jody Thompson, the National Security Advisor's testimony at committee. Uh, Some fantastic, uh, again, insights, and I don't know, just... I sense giving new life to this story. What did you take away from that testimony? I know you watched it live. What are some of the key insights our listeners should be dialed into? I, I guess I would start with two observations. Uh, the first uh, affirms uh, something that you said last week, uh, Rudyard, and, and the second maybe counteracts something you said last week. Um, And and it's interesting to kind of think about which one is right. The first is you made the case last week that you had a sense that this document uh, had been written by committee um, and that David Johnson had ultimately signed off on it, but you got the sense that it wasn't kind of completely his report. And when I heard Jody Thompson make the case against the public inquiry, and how closely that resembled the lines of argument that David Johnson put forward both in the report and in subsequent media veil, you just got the sense um, that he was, in effect, reflecting uh, the advice that he had received from senior officials in the government, which strikes at the heart of the problem with his work as the so-called independent special rapporteur. We had a piece by Tom Jarman this week who raise concern that if this is going to be a truly independent process, it needs to have the resources and the capacity to, in effect, make its own judgments, not simply rely on information and documents and analysis shared by the government. I mean, in in that sense, the report essentially functions as a communications document uh, for the government. And I thought uh, Thomas's case against the public inquiry and 
And just the the extraordinary similarities to the lines of analysis or lines of argument from Johnston reinform that reinforce that point. The second, though, which and maybe at risk contradicting myself, is that at different times Thompson seems to have contradicted Johnston himself, right? Uh, Johnston argued uh, in the report and and similar in his accompanying commentary uh, that Bill Blair had been briefed on um, the intelligence that showed that that MP Chong was being uh, targeted by Chinese officials. And the only reason he didn't get those materials was because he wasn't able to log into the top secret system. Um, Yesterday, Jody Thompson said that that wasn't the issue, that uh, if he was briefed, he would have been briefed by paper documents. Um, And so the fact that there is this disagreement on a pretty basic fact that really strikes at the heart of a lot of the outstanding questions we have uh, reinforces the, 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 I guess, maybe to wrap up my comment, the, the need for a, a genuinely independent process here um, to get mm-hmm. to, the, to the bottom of these issues. Mm-hmm. When we come to Stuart, who's our Talmudic scholar here, able to parse, as he did in his story for us today in the Hub, about uh, Jody Thomas's testimony. And what confused me, Stuart, and maybe it's not confused me, maybe it's an observation, uh, it's a lot of very careful, it seems, parsing of words on the part of the participants in this drama. You have um, the NSC, the National Security Advisor, saying it wasn't you know, briefed up, but it seems that the process would have been to have shared a printed memo of this intelligence, which Ian Brody, when he joined the hub table, hub roundtable, you know, a couple of weeks ago gave us a good indication that that's indeed how things happen. You get a, a paper document, it's red, it goes into a burn box, and it's not like people are running into some computer room with swipe cards uh, to read these things on secure terminals. And then you have Blair, you know, using, again, words like, I was never alerted to this, this memo or this information. And then you had Stuart Jody Thomas, in a sense, saying, look, I don't really know what happened in Blair's office when she was testifying in front of MPs. She said, you know, you need to go and talk to the people that were there at the time. Again, I, I'm this is conjecture here, Stuart, but it seems to me that there could be a credible argument that a physical report was produced and that it went into the minister's office. And the minister didn't read it. And that, to me, starts to get uncomfortably close for Blair and this government in terms of the principles, the doctrines of ministerial responsibility. And that, I wonder, Stuart, if it's what is at the root of all this careful parsing, all this you know, very specific language, but I wasn't alerted. Uh, you know, it wasn't briefed up, which might suggest oral as opposed to written communication. I don't know, Stuart, am I, am I, you know, too deep into the tea leaves here? It just, <laughs> it just seems like there's massaging here of information. And I think Jody's testimony, it, to, to my mind, just raised more doubts. Yeah. I, so now that you've said that I'm going to have to go back and look at it more closely, but I do believe that Jody Thomas said that this would go to the DMs and then it's their call as to whether it gets briefed up and they would be the only ones who would see that in the entire department. And as an aside, Jody Thomas is an interesting character here because 
She was the DM in uh, Deputy Minister in Defense. She's also the National Security Advisor. Um, but in both those roles, she missed this scandal. She just happened <laughs> to not be in the role when it happened. She's kind of like a reverse Forrest Gump in that she just happened <laughs> to be in a different place while the thing was happening. Um, but it does give her some credibility in telling us how these processes work. Um, and I, you know, I, the thing that I took away from this is, first of all, the government's demeanor on this scandal, which is that this was a small breakdown. And if we fix, you know, this little problem with communication, everything's fine. The scandal goes away. The second thing, um, you know, getting into sort of the, um, the the process of this scandal is that we just don't know. And I think what we heard from Andrew House, what we heard from Ian Brody um, directly contradicts the Johnston report. What Jody Thomas is saying directly contradicts the Johnston report. And I think if you take Occam's razor here, you take a guy who's dipping in from retirement to write a report in a couple of weeks. And as a reporter, I'm familiar with this feeling when you're trying to report on something and you don't actually know how it all works. It comes out vague. Sometimes you get things wrong. You don't know who's talking to who or how a process works. And that seems to me to be the problem here. Johnson just didn't understand how this stuff worked. Exactly. Well, you don't you don't know what you don't know. And and that puts you at the behest of uh, of officials in the government of Canada to, in effect, set the parameters of your investigation in terms of the materials that share the analysis you know i i I, don't, I just want to dwell for a minute on my my earlier point about um about the public inquiry and, and and as i say how thomas's language so closely mirrored the language that johnston used in the report it, we, we know of course that it's wrong that in recent days uh, we've had a lot of voices come out from the national security world making the case that a public inquiry is completely possible. Um, and, and it just seems to me that that alternative analysis, that alternative viewpoint was not shared with uh, David Johnston, who was forced to rely entirely on on the government. And, and in effect, and I'll turn it over to you in a second, Rudyard, but in effect, that was reflected, wasn't it, in Johnston's statement uh, after the, the parliamentary vote calling him to step down this week. His his message was was essentially... I report to the government. I'm appointed by the government, um, and it, you know that it, at its it, at its heart, you know, it seems to me reflects the fact that we we haven't up until now had an independent process, and that's the that's the case that the opposition has been making, and a case that polling tells us is increasingly resonant with the Canadian population. Yeah. Again, my apologies, guys, but it I think it goes to the rationale why we need a public inquiry. If you look at the Globe and Mail's reporting this morning, they're quoting Mrs. Thomas as saying, quote, Minister Blair would have been given a reading package, close quote. She then goes on to say MPs would have to speak to officials who were at public safety at the time to learn more. Quote, Minister Blair doesn't walk around with a secret laptop logging onto it. We give them the information they need to read. Now, Blair responds to this testimony saying, quote, CSIS made the decision not to alert him to this note. Guys, this, this language is like you could drive buses, freight trains through the language that's being used here. And I just think we're kind of naive. And maybe, unfortunately, Mr. Johnson was a bit naive. Hmm. 
to assume that this language is not precise and specific to create the necessary uh, wiggle room and uh, confusing of whatever narrative all of us on the outside are trying to assemble to actually understood understand you know what happened. So I just I go back to the reason you know we we had the motion in Parliament this week. I think this all just reinforces the case for a public inquiry because someone's not being clear here and yes. there's no opportunity for cross-examination. There's yes. no evidentiary basis on which this report was written. Uh, we just have to take people's words for it. And Stuart, the words that they're using are weasel words. I'm sorry, they're weasel words. Yeah, and I think... What's working against the Trudeau government in this situation is all of the prior scandals where there was just this slow drip of little statements that sounded one way but could be parsed another way but were intended to convey some message. And, you know, you saw this in the beginning with the Jody Wilson-Raybould thing where Trudeau came out and said the Globe's reporting is inaccurate. And then we come to learn that it was broadly accurate. And I think you can only get away with that so many times where you're a little bit too clever by half trying to find these little loopholes. And I I honestly, listening to Jody Thomas's testimony yesterday, I thought there certainly is, and I know that it's a trope in a scandal to get the rogue public servant and throw them under the bus, but it is entirely possible to me that this hit a DM, the language in the report was too vague for them to consider passing it on, or they just screwed up and then nothing happened. That strikes me as pretty normal incompetence that we would see in the bureaucracy. Yeah, but um, short, short, it's equally possible that the mem there was a physical memo that was produced. As you say, it may not have named MP Chong, but it went to the minister in a whole bunch of briefing material. And I agree. Look, any person can miss a memo and not understand how the information has been contextualized or they haven't been, quote, alerted to this. Again, a very specific word about being alerted to something, according to Minister Blair. But but, Sean, there is this, you know, maybe now hoary, outdated concept of ministerial responsibility. Yes. And, and the government has completely elided this. And in typical Ottawa fashion. No one is responsible. No yes. one's resigned. No one's been fired. I guess the we have seen a, a change in the clerk, the Privy Council. Maybe that's related to this or not. I don't know. But it just seems like we live in this wonderful accountability-free world uh, up there on the Rideau River. The rest of us, unfortunately, maybe don't function in that type of environment. <laughs> I wish I did. I wish, you know, whatever I screwed up on and ignored and, you know, just completely, complete dereliction of duty that, hey, it's just, you know, uh, your next payroll's coming up. Uh, don't worry, you're defined, you know, benefit pension, everything's set, guys. Uh, nothing to see here. Move on. And she has the, I thought, the wonderful the chutzpah to say, we're going to bring in the consultants shot. We're going to bring the, cons <laughs> we need consultants in here to tell us how we can do an even better job. I mean, this is a snow job, Sean, a snow job. Yeah. You talked about ministerial responsibility. You know, our entire Westminster model is predicated on it and predicated on um, the, the executive's accountability to 
to parliament and through parliament um to the the public um you know and this this i think gets at the heart of uh, uh, at the risk of belaboring this point at the heart of the the problem with this whole process i, I think andrew coin to his credit has been uh, has been right on this that at, at the heart of this issue guys is the is getting to the bottom of something that happened within the government the government is in fact under investigation and the problem is of course it appointed the investigator and then it decided what materials and analysis and advice the investigator ought to receive um and par and parliament expresses its um its uh disapproval of the process and the prime minister and the investigator essentially say we don't care what you think um and and you know when you add to that the, the comments that you've made Rudyard about minister blair um not just about whether he received a briefing or didn't receive a briefing but the fact that he um as the as the person at the top of the the food chain within the department of public safety essentially says it's not my fault it's the fault of the CSIS director does, I think, as you say, speak to a degradation of the principle of ministerial responsibility um, and reflects a kind of just disdain, open disdain um, for parliament. And I don't want to sound naive here. I mean, I, there's been lots written over the years about how this has been a slow moving process. Um, um, but I, I, it seems to me this particular scandal and the way in which the government thought they could just appoint David Johnston to put out a press release that basically said there's nothing to see here and Parliament and in turn the Canadian public ought to just move on um, um, reflects a, a kind of pretty extraordinary uh, expression of arrogance. And, you know, if there's any reason to be somewhat um, buoyed, um, you know, it's pretty obvious based on the parliamentary vote and, and polling that we've seen that parliamentarians and the public just aren't buying it. Final uh query for you, Stuart, before we wrap up this topic and go to break. Next week is going to be interesting. Uh, we're going to have David Johnston uh, testifying in front of a parliamentary committee, supposedly two to three hours of testimony. And I, I really worry, uh, Stuart, this is not a good look to have a former governor general, a former head of state pushed into this role of, in a sense, now advancing uh, a theory of this whole affair that is clearly the view of one political party, uh, one prime minister and his government. And he's stepping into a den of MPs there who've spent the last three and a half years deeply studying this issue of election interference through multiple sets of kind of hearings and reports. There's going to be just massive asymmetry in terms of the information and knowledge about Chinese election interference vis-a-vis -vis the committee members and Mr. Johnston. Why are we doing this, Stuart? And, and what's the damage that we're doing to our institutions here, especially the Office of the Governor General, when you know we're putting him into this much more kind of raw, let's face it, political argument and debate about a report, about his findings, about his role, about not uh, responding to Parliament's request that he resign. Yeah, I, I think there's been kind of a an argument being made by David Johnston made this argument, uh, Jody Thomas made it. Some of like liberal sympathetic people will say we need to take partisan politics out of this. And 
I just think that's an unrealistic goal. It's an unrealistic thing uh, to even be arguing. And that is what's going to happen. David Johnson is going to sit down and he's going to be treated like a defender of the liberal government on Parliament Hill. And the spectacle of that, you know, just given uh, the nature of the scandal and given the nature of his public image, you know, I personally have anxiety for him <laughs> leading up to it. Um, and I think that just shows you what the, it's just not a good scene. Uh, it, you look at the U.S. model with special prosecutors. They choose those people for a reason. Um, they're outside the process and they are designed to dig up and investigate. That's not what David Johnson is doing. I'd go further, though, at the risk of sounding uncharacteristically blunt. I, I think the, the calls to take politics out of this are, are bullshit, um, you know, that there's been an accusation that Pierre Polyev and the conservatives have been cynical throughout this process in the way that they've talked about Mr. Johnson and, and talked about the process. And, and I actually, there's something to that. Um, um, but it, there's a cognitive dissonance in the minds of a lot of people with adjacency to the, the liberal party and the government that they don't see the cynicism inherent in the appointment of Mr. Johnson at the, at the outset of this, they gave him a, a title, this sort of, peculiar title that's not part of our typical um, political parlance in Canada. Um, even the notion that his job was to decide whether we'd have a public inquiry or not, as if the government wasn't in a position to make that call. They, we Let's just call it for what it was. The prime minister appointed someone with proximity to him and the government uh, with the goal of um, creating some distance between them and the controversial decision not to hold a public inquiry. Full stop. Um, and so the idea that um, that this process ought to be politics free um, <laughs> ignores the fact that it started with politics. And after that, it's politics all the way down. <laughs> yeah, and I'd say it's increasingly difficult for the government to say this is a partisan exercise when you have a vote in Parliament this week calling for a public inquiry, calling for David Johnson to step down that has the support of three of the major parties. It's a bipartisan across the aisle resolution. So who's partisan? That's the question. Let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk Bill C-18. Is news media going to disappear from your feeds on social and Google search? It could be happening in a matter of weeks. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Well, guys, as we like to do for Hub listeners, uh, go a little bit deeper into a public policy issue on these roundtables. And over the last uh, couple months, we've been interested and been spending some time in our pages dissecting Bill C-18 and its implications. This is the legislation that the government is going to try to get through the House and passed into law before adjourning for the summer that would see the major uh, platforms, uh, Google, Facebook, you name it, um, Twitter, all 
subsidizing incumbent media organizations for uh, the use of uh, their content. I wouldn't even say use, maybe just simply the appearance of their content on these uh, platforms. Um, Sean, we're hearing now that uh, Meta is going to follow Google and run some tests this month about what it would mean to take news, not just out of the feed of Facebook users, but to stop sharing of news uh, between users. Um, I'm curious as to your take on this and how we got to this point, Sean. We were, we're you know, this government over years now has tried to create this whole legislative and public subsidy architecture around the media in Canada. And now we're ending up in a position where Canadians are going to have less access to news. It just seems like we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, at a at a big picture level, the, the underlying argument inherent in this legislation is that um, is that the social media and web organizations benefit from the news content on their site in the for, on their sites in the form of of content and engagement and so on and so then they ought to compensate the news organizations for the production of this content and of course the argument has been as we've discussed on previous episodes that that underlying assumption misreads the the value uh um transmission between the two parties that in effect um the value is uh, the uh, precisely the opposite that news organizations derive value from sharing their content on these platforms and reaching new and different and larger audiences and um this week uh we had um before the senate committee that is studying this legislation uh rudyard uh different organizations different stakeholders that i think effectively uh got to the heart of of resolving how we ought to think about um where the the value ultimately rests we had a particular one particular stakeholder group representing local news organizations who said that more than 50% of the traffic on the sites of the the media organizations that uh, that this group represents comes from Facebook and 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 uh Google and elsewhere and <laughs> and in light of that and in light of the um uh, announcement on the part of uh, Meta that uh that they're going to withdraw off, um potentially from this market you essentially had uh, a a dynamic that I could only describe as follows you have to pay us to display our content okay we won't put display your content no you have to uh and if that doesn't I think um strike at um, the kind of absurdity, the underlying absurdity behind this legislation, I'm afraid I don't know what it does. Yeah. And Stuart, at, at the root of this is, yeah, not unserious public policy kind of debate, which is the, the government's assertion in this legislation that voluntary behavior should be, in a sense, monetized, um, not by the user engaging in the voluntary behavior. <laughs> But by the entity, in this case, the platforms who are, and I think there's a fair amount of analysis to suggest, yes, do they accrue some benefit? Are there eyeballs on their site watching this news content, consuming it? Yes. But as an overall portion of their business, this is a, a fraction and it's minuscule in the context of their overall traffic. But then here we have the government saying, 
you're doing something voluntary. I don't know. Like it's kind of like you're going for a walk with your dog and you're getting paid for it. Now there's something called a dog walker. And I get that. Like I give them my dog and they walk it and I'm happy to pay them for it. But it's a slightly bizarre world within which I simply get to take my dog out for a walk and I don't know, Perina or some dog food company <laughs> pays me to do that. I, I just, I just, I just, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's a strange concept to be embedding in legislation that voluntary behavior should be compensated. It's truly weird. It, personally, for me, I started my career as a web guy at the Edmonton Journal posting stuff on Facebook because that was such an advantageous thing for the company to do. And so that it is just clearly dumb. And I think the the thing that I think people need to do is think rationally from the point of view of Facebook and Google. What else are you supposed to do in this situation? The only negative outcome for Facebook and uh, Google is from PR. If the government can win the PR battle and say, these guys are depriving you of news that's important to be a citizen in our democracy, um, which is clearly a falsehood too. Um, I, I think that's the only way they come out looking bad on this. And I you know, I was thinking a lot about it along those terms too, which is that if, if someone told us at the hub, we couldn't do X or Y, or they would charge us to do it, we might say, okay, we'll do something else. That's just normal business behavior. And at the crux of this too is, as we have found out at the hub, it's a really hard job to make money in the news business. And what makes it even harder for us as a startup, as someone who's competing with legacy outlets is when you're giving them these kinds of bailouts and whether it's coming from the tech companies or whether it's coming from government, it's still a bailout and it's holding up that model that just isn't effective anymore. Sean, we're now entering this bizarre world where the media in Canada could be funded by big government and big tech. And this is a public policy win. <laughs> How exactly? Well, yeah, I assume that's a rhetorical no, 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 question. Think about that, but just think about that. Okay. The press that's supposed to be, you know, free and independent and holding power to account is now in some cases, if you look at the subsidies, that, the payroll subsidies that already exist, plus the other, you know, programmatic funding from the Department of Canadian Heritage, plus these subsidies that would come from the platforms, it could equal 50%, I've heard some analysts say, 50% of the payroll of major incumbent media organizations in Canada, funded by big tech and big government. And that's all going to lead to independence, accountability, and the vital role that the press plays in our society. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the crucial word you use there, Rudyard, is incumbent. Like this is a deeply anti-egalitarian, anti-democratic um, set of, of policies, or at least that will be the outcome. Um, that whatever one thinks about uh, these tech platforms, and you know, Lord knows we have our issues at times, they have enabled uh, the democratized the democratization of news and information and analysis, and we're working through the consequences of that. Right? It's a it, it it's not without um out with without its challenges, but it has given voice um to ideas and 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 people and agendas that the gatekeepers at the incumbent media organizations um, for decades had been able to effectively close out of the market. And um, 
And these policies advanced by the government risk closing those gates again. They either risk closing them by effectively deciding who is the media in the form of of uh, the public subsidies or by chasing uh, Google and Facebook and others out of the market, closing the door to um, smaller organizations to reach their audiences through these platforms. The net effect will be um, less news, less inclusion, um, uh, and and fewer perspectives um, on Canadian democracy, Canadian public policy, et cetera. And I just don't understand um, how facing that, uh, a, a government or policymakers would plow ahead um, and 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 leave us um, with a less democratized public square. Yeah. So, Stuart, to build on that, and I think it's important for hub listeners to understand this because it's partly in the weeds, but it is also, again, really important that this Bill C-18 builds on other legislation and regulatory changes that have seen the government set up in a sense a committee um they seem to love you know appointed committee by the government to designate who and what in canada is a media organization or not and that if you receive this designation you benefit from generous uh tax credits that you could use to offset your payroll and you gener- you can uh, in the case of La Presse, a major paper in Montreal, you can convert your news entity into a charity and receive charitable subsidies and issue charitable tax receipts. This is all, again, controlled within the government um, by a, a small appointed committee of, of journalists. So on one hand, you have this, in my view, this, this kind of pretty powerful and a little bit a little bit scary mechanism that is defining who's who is news and who isn't and attaching significant benefits to that designation and then on the other hand we're going to have you know public funding flowing from big tech if this bill is passed and the platforms agree to participate in it which seems unlikely but in that scenario you would then have money flowing from big tech into the media whereby the designation of who is a media group or not will once again be a determination of uh, a committee within government. This seems to me, Stuart, the real story, the thread through all of this is just the creeping government, not just intervention, but control of what is media, what is news, and what isn't, and attaching huge financial rewards to the individuals and groups and organizations that they benight as uh, as qualified <laughs> journalists, and those that don't will then suffer on the outside in some kind of nuclear winter of news without you know the cozy blanket of government subsidy determined by government fiat. I mean, this is this is pretty radical stuff at the end of the day. Yeah. And the striking thing to me is that journalists have always rejected and resisted credentialing on an individual basis as a journalist. You don't want the government telling you who can or can't be a journalist. And that is something that if you polled 20 journalists, you'd find 19 people who agreed with that, I think. But it's kind of crept in through the back door with this credentialing of organizations, which I think is probably more insidious 
um, especially when you're tying funding to it. And something that I think has been sort of under discussed in all of this is what happens, you know, if if I'm at a media organization that knows a big chunk of its funding is coming from big tech, and then we get a big scandal on one of these big tech companies, is the leadership of that organization going to feel okay reporting on, you know, some scandal at Google, knowing it could hurt revenue or it could even hurt the company existentially? Sure. Even worse, imagine you're in that media organization as a manager or publisher or editor in chief, and you know that the designation regulatory that allows you to access that money from big tech or from the government through payroll subsidies is kind of at the pleasure, the purview of the government itself. Yeah. That's what's that's what's genuinely alarming about this guys is that the government not only is choosing who gets to be designated as a qualified journalistic organization and receive these significant subsidies could be 50% of payrolls. If this legislation passes total combined with all the regulatory and other legislative frameworks have been put into place just because they gave it to you doesn't mean that they can't take it away guys. (laughs) Right? Like that's pretty naive, Sean, to think that, well, Oh, they gave it to us. It's guaranteed. I don't know. There's no court. This this is in the Constitution. So suddenly the government has a string to pull with every single media organization. And we're talking the big ones who are already in this, this regulatory framework, Globe and Mail, Global News. Uh, post media. Post media. Like on and on and on. These are these are the organizations that provide, I don't know, 90% a massive amount of Canadians news. And you think, Sean, that this isn't going to have a little bit of a quieting effect, uh, a little bit of docility, a kind of Thorzine drip over the free press in Canada in the years to come? The the proof point of that, guys, is the number of op-eds on the opinion pages of these papers in favor of Bill C-18. Um, it's not an accident that those editorial pages have tilted in favor of the legislation. I would, I would acknowledge that the Globe and Mail has, has enabled Andrew Coyne and others to to raise concerns about it. But I, I think it's fair to say, on balance, um, it's tilted in favor. There's also the kind of counterfactual, like um, an episode of Hub Dialogues recently. I talked to Aaron Woodruff from the McDonald Laurie Institute, and he says that when MLI um, tries to place op-eds, uh, raising concerns about these different policies. Surprise, surprise, they don't find a home except at places like the hub. Um, so I think the short answer is it's already happening. Um, and I, let me just make one separate but related point. Something inherent in this legislation is kind of a, a static, almost anachronistic view about the news media. And it's kind of similar to the static anachronistic view reflected in um, Bill C-11, um, the legislation related to Canadian content. Like, it's like the government doesn't realize that innovation is happening. It's, it's you know, it's iterative. People are trying to figure it out. Um, but there are a lot of examples of new and emerging uh, models and uh, for, for media in this new online environment of which the hub is one. Um, and by putting the thumb on the scale of the incumbents, by pushing public subsidies to them and now 
uh, trying, it uh, looks like ultimately unsuccessfully, to mandate big tech to pay them. The government is in effect um, putting this, a stick in the spokes of this process of creative destruction. Um, and, you know, so I think what you're hearing in my voice is just a frustration that this process isn't smooth. It's, you know, it, it, at times it's a bit, um, it has its challenges. But the world of of online news is more democratized, more innovative, more interesting, more inclusive. And all the government is doing here is is basically deciding, no, it wants to try to um, keep the the lights on at at post media and, and elsewhere, as opposed to being um, neutral and letting the market ultimately figure out um, what the, the future of the news media looks like. Yeah, well said. And just to wrap up this this segment, guys, you know, it doesn't mean that there isn't a public policy problem to solve here, which is the underfunding of the media. But there were so many other different ways that we could have done this. We could have given, um, you know, Canadians a a tax credit and allowed them, you know, to choose which media they would like to consume, and therefore, you know, through their consumption, allocate a subsidy. Right? It didn't have to be brought into government, managed by appointed committees, overseen by what's internationally pretty draconian legislation. This this whole thing to me represents, you know, an ideological worldview, the heavy hand of the state intervening, picking winners and losers. And I'm sorry, at the end of the day, assuming greater power for the state over the media and potentially managing the very sources in society that would challenge the power of the state and mm-hmm. government, which mm-hmm. is a free and open press. This is big stuff, people. Uh, again, I don't want to blow it out of proportion, but what's happening here accumulatively through these different bills and through this regulation and through this whole technocratic approach is a threat to our liberties, to our freedoms, to an accountable and transparent government. That's what's at stake. Okay, guys, uh, great roundtable this week. We will do it all again next Friday. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. 